1 Samuel chapter 20 and verse 1. As we continue on our walk through the Word, and we come to David and Jonathan, before this chapter starts, just a, a review of where we've been. Saul is king over Israel, although he has blown it big time so many times that the father says, Saul, you're not going to be king anymore. Your kingdom is going to be taken from you and given to a man after my own heart. That's what God said. And so little David was anointed, the shepherd boy out in the fields, was anointed to be king. But he's not king yet. Saul is still king. He's still clinging to his place on the throne. He's still holding on to it. And David has become for Saul a grave threat. Saul wants to maintain his rule and his authority and his control in Israel. And the tighter he tries to hold on, the more he loses his grip. David, back in 1 Samuel 17, fought Goliath, came along. When no one else would stand up to this monster, David did, and fought him valiantly and and killed him. You know the story. And after that, immediately Saul started to worry about this David because the people were saying, David has killed his tens of thousands while Saul has killed his thousands. So David's praise song was a little more honoring than Saul's was. Three times Saul tries to pin David to the wall with a spear. As David was just playing his harp, playing music for Saul to soothe the insanity that is creeping into Saul, Saul picked up the spear by his throne and chucked it across the room and tried to kill David. Finally, after the third time, David gets the hint and he runs for his life. And he's been running ever since. That happened in chapter 19. His wife Michael, we talked about this on Sunday, let David through a window and he went out and, and he escaped. And they tricked Saul and then David ran to Ramah where Samuel was. But there in Ramah, Saul sent messengers. Three different groups of messengers who show up in Ramah to take David and each group of messengers as they show up to the place where Samuel and the prophets are prophesying, they become prophets too. Finally, Saul himself goes to Ramah to try and take David. But when he comes into the vicinity of Ramah and Samuel and the prophets and these three other groups of people who are now prophesying, Saul himself begins to prophesy. Why? Because as we talked about Sunday, he entered into a place where the presence of God was palatable. And when you come into the presence of God, it's hard to miss what God is doing. And the point, as we talked about Sunday, is not the gift but the giver of the gift, that God was so there, so present in that place, that Saul begins to prophesy. And that chapter ends up with Saul in verse 24 of chapter 19. He stripped off his clothes and he prophesied before Samuel and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets. And you know and I know when we come into the presence of God, when we decide... When we purpose to be in God's presence and to be in real relationship with God, He will strip us bare. He will leave us naked. Of all those things that we try to clothe ourselves with, see, we're still like Adam and Eve in the garden. We're still trying to grab a hold of something to cover our nakedness, to cover up our shame. And God says, you know, as long as you're covering your shame, I can't deal with your shame. I would like to remove your shame from you. As long as you're covering it and trying to hide it, there's no dealing with it. And so the Lord will strip us bare, but He will deal gently with us and lovingly. Well, that brings us up to the present chapter where David now, in chapter 20, verse 1, fled from Naioth and Ramah. And he came and he said to Jonathan, so now he's run away, Saul's, this is bizarre stuff is happening. David runs again and comes back to Jonathan and says, What have I done? What is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he's seeking my life? 
He said to him, far be it, from, far, far from it, you shall not die. This is Jonathan speaking. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. David goes to his best friend. Your dad's after me. And his best friend says, no. If he was, I'd know about it. He doesn't do anything without checking with me. And yet, verse 3, David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight. And so he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this or he'll be grieved. But truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. And this is shocking news to Jonathan. At this point, Jonathan has attempted to go between David and Saul. To stand up for his friend David before his father. And Jonathan assumes that Saul's going to keep his word. Remember back in chapter 19 verse 6. Jonathan appeals to Saul on David's behalf. And Saul swears, I will not harm him. And just verses later he picks up another spear and checks it at David. But Jonathan still is trying to work all this out. He is caught in a very difficult place. He's caught between the rock of friendship and the hard place of family loyalty. Ever been there? Where you know your friend is speaking with integrity, but the speaking is against a family member or someone else that you're close to, and you're looking at both and you're saying, what do I do with this? How do I handle this? Well, this is the position that Jonathan is now in. You know, there's an old adage that goes, blood is thicker than water. I don't buy it. I believe faithfulness is thicker than blood. And the faithfulness of the heart is stronger than the physical blood that flows through it. Simply because you're related to someone physically does not mean the relationship is stronger. And we kind of assume that it should. But the reality is that there is a friend, Proverbs 18.24, who sticks closer than a brother. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And this is exemplified, as we'll see tonight, in David and Jonathan's relationship. These two great friends who love each other dearly are caught in a no-win situation. But as we study this no-win situation, as we look at it, we'll find some truths about the heart of a friend. But before we go there, I want you to notice that the statement that David makes in these first three verses... It's a precious statement. I have it underlined in my Bible. He says, Truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. And I think that's absolutely right. For all of us. There is hardly a step between me and death. Just this past week, we had two deaths in our fellowship, or or with people in our fellowship, family members. Steve Barrison's father... And uh, Maureen Esker's mother. And just a week and a half, two weeks ago, we had Linda Cheek pass on, go on to be with the Father. And David is right. We are all but a step away from death. Linda's death was somewhat expected because she had cancer and it was taking her slowly, 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 slowly away. It was slowly shutting down her body. And so in those last few moments of her life, it was, it was almost expected she was, she was about to go. Maureen's mother was not expected. Steve's father, not expected. Stroke and a heart attack. And they happened quickly. We are all but a step away from death. You might say, well, thanks, Rick. That's encouraging. Appreciate you letting us know that tonight. I'm not trying to be morbid. I'm trying to put out there this nugget of truth 
It's actually a good nugget of truth, especially if you are in the Lord, and that is this. Eternity is but a step away. And eternity with Jesus is but a breath away, a heartbeat away. You're that close to being with the Lord forever. Psalm 103, verse 15. David wrote, As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. But when the wind passes over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. So you and I in our physical life, we're but a breath. We're like the grass of the field that withers and dies But David says this, The loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember His precepts and do them. But sometimes, in our limited perspective, this side of heaven, people ask this question, Why do the good people have to die? Why do good people have to die? People we've prayed for. People we've hoped for, people we have struggled for, why is it that they have to die? Several years ago, I heard a great verse that speaks to this very issue. You might want to jot it down, I'll just read it to you, but it's Isaiah 57, verses 1 and 2. Where Isaiah the prophet writes the following, he says, The righteous man perishes, and no man takes it to heart. And devout men are taken away, while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from evil, and he enters into peace. You see, this side of heaven, we look at death as a a horrible thing, as a sad thing, as as a traumatic thing. But on the other side, for those walking with Jesus, they are entering into rest and peace and joy. Unlike anything we can ever experience in this life, when a man or woman of God goes on to be with God, don't forget, they no longer have to put up with sin. They don't have to put up with evil. They don't have to watch the evening news and go, Oh man, how much longer are we going to do this? They don't have to handle people attacking them. They don't have to deal with the struggles of daily living. They don't have to put up with the pain and the heartache and the stress and the strain. That is all replaced with peace. And that's a wonderful thing. Needless to say, let us all remember, like David, there's but a step between us and death. Now some of you might say, well Rick, it sounds like you're longing for death. Well, no, I, I, I think like Paul does, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And which is the better? I'm not really sure. Because I want to go on living in Jesus. I tell you, I love doing what I get to do. And I love this fellowship, and I love being in the Word together, and I love worshiping together, and I love walking this out together. And it's so exciting, day in and day out, seeing what God's going to do next in our life. I love that. But to be with Christ? That seems so much better. So Paul says, I'm torn between the two. Which would be an odd thing to say if you didn't know the truth about eternity. As the Word tells us, Jesus is just waiting for us. And God is just waiting to send the Son again to turn the whole thing off and to bring us home. And that is imminent, my friends. It's imminent. There's but a step between us and death. We especially understood that in the Philippines because as we rode around town, (laughs) there were many times where we were looking at each other going, we're just going to die. 
We're going to die. Filipinos, for the most part, are smaller than Americans. They are, and they'll admit that to you, and you can see that. We walk, we were, like, we were like giants. Most of them were coming up to about here on, on Russ and I, and as we're looking out, you know, we, we stand up to sing, and our big heads would be in the way of the overhead projector, and they'd all be, you know. And so their cars are smaller, too. Their minivans are mini. They're very small, and they'll have a little cab, and then typically like an open truck in the back, but it's hardly a truck. It's so much hardly a truck that Russ lifted one up to have a tire change. <laughs> And we have pictures to prove it. He had a little help from Ben, you know, but and I helped, I, you know, put my finger in. But he stand there holding this thing up. They're little vehicles. Pack five big dumb Americans in the back of one of these little vehicles and go 50 miles an hour down the highway. We were but a step from death. We were right there. And I kept thinking the whole time that Cheryl, if she, if she, if I died riding in one of these vehicles in the Philippines, Cheryl would kill me. <laughs> and we got in tricycles. That are these? They're like the Chinese rickshaw, only that there's their little tricycle rider's got a seat right there, and you pay ten pesos and hop in the seat, and off you go. And they just ride like the wind down these streets, and it's crazy. And Russ Pittis did crazy things in the Philippines. I know, safety Russ. He is known around here as safety Russ. If there's a wire loose in here, Russ is taping it up, you know. But in the Philippines, no, he was nuts. He was but an inch away from death almost every day. And the rest of us are pulling him back. Russ, settle down. Knock it off. Get out of the back of the truck. Russ, come on. But it was a reminder to me how, how quickly we could have been gone. I mean, seriously, we were. some of the traffic there was just bizarre. They don't use lines. They just, you know, everywhere. Cut in. It, it was amazing. What if this was your last day? What if today was your last step? Would you have spent today the way you would have wanted to spend the day if you had known ahead of time it was your last day? What did you do today? Did you get to spend time with Jesus? Praise the Lord, every one of you here has spent time now in worship and you're in the Word, which makes this a good day. But is the day that you spent today, is it the kind of day that you would say, that was my last on earth and it was great. Rich Mullen says, live like you'll die tomorrow, die knowing you'll live forever. Jesus says, be on the alert. Why? So that every day will count. So there's not going to be one day that, boy, if I could mark that week off the calendar, that month, that year of my life just like to ignore that let every day be like the last day in a positive way Linda Cheek spent her last day on earth in the hospital worshipping what a wonderful way to go kind of like Enoch just worshipping right on with the father and Linda's daughter told us at the funeral she said at one point when Linda was kind of in and out and she wasn't sure if, if she was really conscious of what was going on around her eyes were open but she said mom do you know where you are I may mess this up a little bit do you know where you are and she said glory and her daughter was a little concerned because that wasn't a very good answer in our world and so she said mom do you know what your name is and Linda said Glory. Glory. That's living your last day the best way.
Truly there is hardly a step, not just between me and death, but there is hardly a step between me and glory. And my encouragement to you is not to pursue dying. My encouragement is die to yourself and live as if tomorrow begins forever. That's what we're invited to. Well, David, he says this out of a heart of fear. He's worried. And Dave and John, best of friends, begin to work out this threatening situation between them. Jonathan said to David in verse 4, Whatever you say, I will do for you. So David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I ought to sit down and eat with the king, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field until the third evening. The new moon, you might remember back in the book of Numbers, it talked about that. Numbers 10, verse 10. It talks about the new moon festival. Every month, the Jews were to blow the shofar and have a feast. God was into feasts and festivals and parties for the Jews. He wanted his people to celebrate. So every month on the new moon festival of the Sabbath, they, they would get together and they'd have a feast and they'd blow the shofar and, and they would celebrate. So this is what Dave is talking about. Tomorrow is the new moon. He says, let me go that I might hide myself in the field until the third evening. Verse 6, if your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, because it's the yearly sacrifice there for the whole family. If he says it's good, then your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, know, Jonathan, know that your father has decided to kill me. He has decided on evil. I want us to consider the implications of the friendship of David and Jonathan tonight. I'm going to give you several things to jot down if you're a note taker. And the first one is simply this. The heart of a friend seeks truth over implication. The heart of a friend seeks truth over implication. What David is doing here is rather than gossip about Saul to his son Jonathan, rather than badmouth Saul, rather than say negative things about Saul, David says, I'll tell you what, I'm just going to let the truth come out. Here's something we can do, and you can see for yourself. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But if I'm right, then you will see for yourself. And I don't even have to say another thing about it. You will know, Jonathan, he doesn't try to influence him with gossip or negative talk like we often do. In friends and family relationships, sometimes when we want to have the one-up on somebody else and we're talking to someone over here, instead of just letting the truth play itself out, we start to feed those negative comments about this other person to a brother or sister or a friend until they begin to see the person as negative like we do. And it may just be us. So David wants to let the truth out. I'm going to let you see for yourself. John 3.21, Jesus said, He who practices the truth comes into the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. What that means is his deeds may be seen as from God. You walk in the light as he is in the light. John, 1 John 1.7 If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. If we walk in truth. And so the heart of a friend seeks truth over implication. We would rather allow the truth to play itself out than gossip about one another. Just walk in the truth. It's the best thing we can do. Verse 8 David says, Therefore, deal kindly with your servant. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is iniquity, David says, if there is sin in me, put me to death yourself. For why then should you bring me to your father? He says, hey, if I'm wrong, if I'm sinning, if I'm the problem here, then you put me to death, Jonathan. Then you take me out if I shouldn't be here. And these are the words of a man after God's own heart. 
David will speak words like these many times in his life. It's a willingness to stand and walk in the truth and say, if there is sin in me, then let's find it so we can deal with it. If the iniquity is mine, Jonathan, deal with me. Put me to death yourself. Or at least help me die to that sin. If there's something going on in my life, it's a willingness to walk in the truth, whatever the truth is. It's really a letting down of pride. David will later write in Psalm 139.23, Search me, O God, and know me. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. And David is not saying, Check me out, Lord. Because the more you look, the better it gets. The deeper you search, the cooler I am. He says, see if there's any wicked way in me. Because if there is, then God will find it and take it away so that David can live in the way everlasting. That's the heart of a man who follows God. Someone with an open heart, truthful even with his or her own sin, willing to be tested and if found sinful to confess and repent. Because we're all sinners. It's a hard thing in church for us to really be honest about our sin. I mean, how many of us, if we had open mic sin night, would want to show up for that? I'll be the first one in the door. That's great. It's going to be a fun night. Well, this last week, let me see. I've got my list here. You know, who wants to share those things? And yet, the reality is we all sin. We all fall short of God's glory. When we try and hide away that stuff is when we get messed up. But when we say, search me and try me and see if there is any wicked way in me, my closest friends do this for me. They look into my life and into my heart and they can tell me, Rick, you're kind of being a jerk. And I can say, well, I know, Penelope, I'm apologizing now for that. No, you haven't. No, you've always stopped just short of that. We need that in our lives, people that we can confess to. People we can be open with. David and Jonathan are like that. They're accountability partners. They are brutally honest with each other. And David is even to the point, I mean, I, so much of this is right on the verge of tears. As David says to Jonathan, if there's iniquity in me, man, let's find out. If, it, if I'm the problem, if I'm the one driving your father to this and it's my sin... I need to know and I need to be put to death. I need to be stopped. Man, I love David. Verse 9. Jonathan then says to David, Far be it from you. For if I should indeed learn that evil has been decided by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you about it? Again, honesty right back to David. I'm not going to side up. I want to know the truth. Verse 10. David said to Jonathan, Well, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let's go out into the field. So both of them went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, will be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if there is good feeling toward David, toward you, shall I not then send to you and make it known to you? And if it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan. And more also, if I do not make it known to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. John says, Dave, let's test this out together. I am with you either way. That's a friend. 
Whatever happens, I am standing by you. That's why there's a, a friend that sticks closer than a brother or even a son. That's why blood is not thicker than water. That's why faithfulness and friendship is thicker than blood. And so Jonathan says, I stand with you either way, but let's find this out. Let's test it. Number two in your notes, the heart of a friend seeks truth, not only over implication. The heart of a friend like Jonathan seeks truth over refutation. For the reality is, if Jonathan finds what David says to be true, it's going to hurt Jonathan as well as Saul. This will be smudge and be smear Jonathan's family name. People are going to be looking at Saul and going, he's a nut. What about his son Jonathan? Is he a nut too? That old family's crazy. Jonathan will be embarrassed. Jonathan can be humiliated his whole life, his whole call to the throne. Following his dad, Saul, will unravel around him if this is the truth. This would rip the kingdom right out of Jonathan's hands. But Jonathan is more interested in the truth than he is in his own reputation. He stands to lose much more than just face here. But Jonathan, like David, he's, he's more concerned with the truth than his personal outlook. Because truth, and listen to me, truth is bigger than the moment. Truth is bigger than the moment. There are times in our lives where we come to our own self-defense in the moment because in the moment we want to look good. Our pride doesn't want us to look ashamed or look wrong. And so in the moment, we try and stand on something and it's a lie. Truth is bigger than the moment. The truth, another way to put it is the truth will always come out. Always. And invariably in my life, there have been times where I've thought, if I say nothing about this, people are going to think that it's my fault. But God says, nonetheless, you keep your mouth closed about this. And I have seen again and again where the truth comes back around and comes out. And the truth comes out when I try and hide it, too. When I try and hide things that I've done that I don't want people to know about, it comes out. It's amazing how it sneaks out, how it finds its way out. But the truth always comes out. Truth is bigger than the moment. Proverbs 12:19 says, Truthful lips will be established forever. A lying tongue, it's only for the moment. I love that. That's, that, that's so powerful. Because oftentimes we think that a lying tongue is going to stick with us forever. We think, oh, this person said this about me and my reputation's at stake here. Hey, truth is bigger than your reputation. And truth will always come out. Proverbs 21:28. A false witness will perish, but the man who listens to the truth will speak forever. Truth is bigger than the moment. And so in relationships, the Lord invites us to walk in the light, to walk in truth. Not to defend ourselves, but if we are walking honestly and truthfully before the Lord, let the chips fall where they may. And let the truth prove itself to be true. So Jonathan, again, could easily try to protect his father's reputation and by extension his own, but the truth matters more to him. So here's what they're going to do. He says in verse 14, If I'm still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord? that I may not die. You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. 
Now before we see how their plan is going to play out here, there's something else that just happened. The heart of a friend, number three, seeks truth across generations. The heart of a friend seeks truth across generations. Jonathan is saying to David, even if I die, will you keep this covenant with my children and with my children's children? If this is true about what you're saying about my father and our house, will you keep this covenant of love between us? Why would he say this? Because historically, threats to a throne were wiped out. Historically, if someone rose to the throne and there were enemies against him who were on the throne before him, the family would be wiped out. David could have done it. Once he rose to the throne, he could have sought out all of Saul's offspring and had them all killed just to protect himself. Kings did it often in these days. Or at least he could have banished them from the country of Israel saying, you'll no longer be here because I'm not going to deal with you threatening my throne. David didn't do it because he had a covenant with Jonathan. And there's a fantastic story that we're going to come to in 2 Samuel about how David keeps this promise to Jonathan's progeny, to Jonathan's sons. When there's peace in Israel and everything begins to settle down, David sits down on the throne and he says, Now then, back to 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Is there anyone left? Search him out. They find a servant, a guy named Ziba. Great name. Ziba. Can you check? And, and Ziba was a servant in the house of Saul. Is there anyone left? And Ziba says, yes, there, there is. There's one little guy, a little guy with, with legs that don't work, named Mephibosheth. Little Mephibosheth, the last living descendant of Jonathan. And what David does for him is precious. It says he had him come, in essence, to Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel 9.11, in fact, all of 2 Samuel chapter 9 is the story of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's own sons. Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate at the king's table regularly. And we're going to talk about that. That will probably be a Sunday morning because it's all about grace. It is a beautiful story of grace, of being brought to the king's table to eat like one of his sons. That's what God does for us. On behalf of His Son, He invites us to the King's table where we sit regularly and we eat as though we were His sons. It's one of those stunning moments in Scripture. Not only does God call us friends, but He calls us sons. He invites us into sonship, adoption, sons and daughters of the King to sit at the table. Though we haven't deserved it, though we haven't earned it, not by blood. I am not of Jewish descent. I'm not tied to the line of Judah. So my blood does not qualify me. But his blood does. And in that case, Jesus' blood is thicker than any water. Do you think about generations? I don't know if it's just an age thing or what, but I'm just now starting to think about generations. Corey's 17, and I'm thinking in the next 30 or 40 years he may have children. <laughs> Hannah's 15 I'm thinking you know when she's 35 or 40 and meets a guy <laughs> I am eventually going to have grandkids out there Lord willing and as rapture ready as I am I'm beginning to think right now about my impact on not just my children but on their kids I was thinking this the other day when I, I got all over Hayden because he hit his hand See, I don't handle pain well. And Hayden just whacked his hand and he's downstairs in his room crying and I walk in and Corey's just down the hall. And Hayden's in his room and he's... 
and, and, and Hayden doesn't handle pain. I mean, you, you could flick him and, ah, you know, that's just the way he is. And so he hit his hand, and, and I'm not being the most compassionate dad because I don't like pain. And unfortunately, and I've learned this about myself, when people are in pain, it tends to make me more angry than compassionate. So please don't hurt yourselves in here. Because I might just tell you to get out of here. And so I go into Hayden's room, and Corey's just around the corner. I'm going, Hayden, how is it possible that you did this to yourself? Because earlier that day, he closed the sliding glass door on his bottom lip. How do you do this? I mean, he, he has ways of hurting himself that are so creative. And he did. His little puppy thing is like, oh, I was just looking out the door and slammed the door. So, so I'm a little put out by now. I just one more pain from home. And, and so I'm, I'm, but I kind of got on to him and I said, oh, it's going to be okay. Shake it off. Walk it off, son. You know, and, I, and I leave the room and I got back upstairs. And, and all of a sudden, Corey, I didn't tell you this, son, but I started thinking about Corey and thinking, how did I just show Corey? that a father is to react to his son. And it really hit me. I was so convicted. I'm telling you this now because I'm telling you that's not the way to do it. <laughs> I thought, wow, what is the impact that I'm having on these children around me? And how is that going to affect their kids? And Jonathan is saying the same thing to David. I, I'm concerned about those who come after me. Jonathan's wonderful. I'm not concerned about myself. I'm not concerned about my throne. I'm not even concerned about my safety. I just want the truth to come out. But David, will you look after my kids? Will you promise me that no harm is going to come to my house? I want my kids to walk in the truth. I want my children to sit at the king's table. That's what I desire. Exodus chapter 20 verse 5 tells us, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. And people often take that verse out of context. They don't read it clearly. And they say, God is going to punish kids to the third and fourth generation. It doesn't say that. It says God is going to visit the third and fourth generations and see how they're doing. And see if the father's sin has been passed and carried along. He's going to come back to every generation and give every generation a chance to show whether or not they have chosen Him. And the verse goes on and says this wonderful news, but showing loving kindness to thousands of generations to those who love me and keep my commandments. God wants our progeny to sit at His table. God wants our future generations to be loved and cared for the same way Jonathan wanted David to do it for him. People read that verse and they say, is God going to blame the children for their father's sins? And the answer is no. I want to read you quickly a verse in Ezekiel. We've actually read this before, but it's been a while and and it's worth uh, going back and double checking here. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 1. says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel? And here's the proverb. The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. Interesting proverb. Dad bites into the grapes, but it bothers the kids. In other words, the kids are paying for the sins of the father. As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son, and the soul who sins will die. Now we may carry stuff from previous generations. In fact, we do. It's interesting that often when someone is dealing with a particular addiction, 
father did too, or grandpa did, or great-grandpa did. We do carry some of that stuff. It does get passed along. Those ways of, of dealing with life, those ways of handling things. But the Lord says, when it comes to sin, the soul that sins will die. Not the soul whose father sins will die. Each successive generation is responsible for itself. He says if a man is righteous and practices justice and righteousness and does not eat of the mountain shrines or lift up his eyes to idols on the house of Israel or defile his neighbor's wife. He goes on and on and says other things. He says in verse 9, if he walks in my statutes and my ordinances so as to deal faithfully, he's righteous and will surely live, declares the Lord God. Down in verse 19 he says, yet you say, why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? When the Son has practiced justice and righteousness and has observed all my statutes and done them, he shall surely live. And you might say tonight, well, none of us can observe all of the statutes. That's right. That's why we have Jesus, who did observe all the statutes and who has covered us as if we have grace. And the Lord says, the person who sins will die, verse 20. The Son will not bear the punishment for the Father's iniquity, nor will the Father, by the way, bear the punishment for the Son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. So God is saying very clearly, each generation is responsible to me. And I will visit each generation to see how they're doing, and to extend the hand of grace. Amazing. So the heart of a true friend, back to our story, 1 Samuel 20, the heart of a true friend seeks truth over implication. Not gossiping, but allowing the truth to come out. The heart of a true friend seeks truth over reputation. Not concerned about myself or how I might look, but concerned about the truth in my friendship, in my relationship. And if I happen to be wrong, I'm willing to fess up to it. I'm willing to be the one who says it was my fault. And number three, a friend seeks truth across generations. Number four, the heart of a friend gives truthful direction. The heart of a friend gives truthful direction. Watch what they do. It's interesting. Jonathan said to David, Okay, so tomorrow's the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. And when you have stayed for three days, you shall go down quickly and come to the place where you hid yourself on that eventful day, and you shall re- remain by the stone Azel. Remember that, the stone Azel. I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shoot at a target. And behold, I will send a lad saying, Go find the arrows. If I specifically say to the lad, Behold, the arrows are on this side of you. Get them. Then come. For there is safety for you and no harm as the Lord lives. But if I say to the youth, Behold, the arrows are beyond you. Go, for the Lord has sent you away. As for the agreement of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. What is Jonathan saying? He's saying, okay, we're going to work out a little system here. Here's how you're going to know what happened in my father's court. I'm going to come out, and if all is good, if Saul didn't get angry, but he was cool, and we've tested this out, and I'm going to shoot an arrow, and I'm going to shoot it short of my, of my little kid who's out there, my lad who's there to help me. It would have been kind of funny if he'd shot the arrow like right through his head, you know. I don't know what that would have said. Probably would have said to David, I can't hang out with Jonathan anymore. But he said, if I, if I shoot the arrow short and I say, come back this way, then you know it's safe. Come on back to the, to the palace. But if I shoot it long and I say, go, the arrow's beyond you, that means you've got to run. That means your safety is at stake. And you were right about my father. So they developed this little system of how they're going to work it out. But this is interesting to me. Jonathan says, I'm going to shoot an arrow 
but in essence shows you the way to go. I thought, wow, that'd be really nice. Wouldn't it be nice in life to have arrows that showed us the way to go? Like every time you had a question, suddenly an arrow would pop up and say, this is the direction. Oh, okay, good. Go that way. You know? And then I'm not sure where you oh, arrow over here. And that's what Jonathan's providing for David, an arrow to show him the way to go. And he says, while I show, shoot the arrow, stay near that stone that we call Azel. Azel. Now, anytime you see a name, a name in the Bible, I hope you're looking it up. Because there's stuff behind this. The name Azel means the stone of departure, or literally the rock that shows the way. Azel, the stone that shows the way. You, you stand by the stone that shows the way, and you will have an arrow pointing you in the right direction. And we do have that. We stand on the rock that shows the way. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the rock of our salvation. The stone that shows the way to go. But the parallel is even more powerful here. Because in verses 18 and 19, Jonathan gives three directives to David. He says, now listen, I want you to wait until after the new moon festival for three days. Remain by the rock that shows the way. So it's going to be, there's going to be a festival happening. And then three days, we'll give it three days. And at the end of three days, I want you to stand by the rock that shows the way. Or literally the rock of departure. This picture for me is awesome in the same way the great festival weekend of Passover was happening in Jerusalem. And all hope disappeared. The apostles were plunged into despair. Things were as dark as they could be. They huddled together in that upper room, terrified for their lives. Jesus was, as far as they understood, dead in the grave. It all began on that festival of Passover. And yet three days later, something happened. But until that happened, where were they going to go? What were they to do? Where could they possibly run? They were in kind of a similar place as David, who for those three days of waiting didn't know what was going to happen or where his life was going to turn, what direction he was going to go. Even though Jesus had already told the apostles the direction of their lives and what was going to happen, Mark chapter 8 verse 31 says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And Mark says he was stating the matter plainly. The apostles should have known exactly what was going on. Jesus, this was not a surprise. He had been telling them. You know when he first told them that he was going to die? And three days later raised from the dead? It was on the day that Peter confessed that he was the Christ. This was still somewhat early in his ministry, gang. So for a long period of time in the gospel story, in the narrative, Jesus is telling the apostles, Hey, look, guys, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and the chief priests and elders are going to hand me over to the Romans, and they are going to kill me. But three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. I don't know what the apostles were thinking when he said that. Oh, it's another metaphor. Do you understand the parable, Peter? I don't get what he's saying. He stated the matter plainly. This is what's going to happen. He plainly directed them to the stone that shows the way. Let me read to you about the stone that shows the way. John chapter 20. John chapter 20 and verse 1. It says, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone that was taken away from the tomb. Ezel means the stone of departure. When the stone was rolled away from the tomb, what did Jesus do? He departed. He left the tomb. It was empty. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, who we know to be John, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. 
and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. And the two were running together. And I love how John adds this, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter, and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. So Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. And so the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, he saw and he believed. What did John see that caused him to believe? He saw a zell, a stone of departure. The stone had been rolled away. And while Peter's in there looking at all this and trying to figure it out, John is outside. And he's looking at the tomb. He's looking at the stone. And he's thinking about the Roman garrison that was there that's not there anymore. He's thinking, who could have possibly gotten by in the stone? And all of a sudden, Jesus' words begin to tick in John's mind. Wait a minute. He said, we're going to Jerusalem. He told us plainly this is exactly what was going to happen. The stone of departure. That the stone would be rolled away. And that he is the one who would do it. And of course Jesus pointing the disciples, the apostles in the right direction told them in John 14. The night before he died he said, you know the way I'm going. Thomas said, Lord show us the way. And he says, I am the way. And the truth and the life, no man comes to the Father but through me. So Jesus is the stone who shows the way. And Jesus is the stone of departure from death to life. From our old life to our new life, he is the stone of departure. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.6, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. And that's what I mean when I say the heart of a friend gives truthful direction. For you see, true friends don't let friends die lost. You've probably seen the old commercial about drinking. Friends don't let friends drive drunk. Well, friends don't let friends die lost. A true friend is going to place the truth out before a friend who's lost. Not fearing the relationship may crumble because of it. Not fearing, oh, what if they think I'm a little you know, Jesus freakish for saying something. Not fearing at all, if you're truly a friend of someone, you're not going to want to see them die lost. And so you're going to give them honest, truthful direction. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Oh, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Point him to the empty tomb. Show him the stone of Azel. The stone of departure. Just tell him the gospel story and let the truth do what the truth does. Point into the stone that shows the way. Now watch the drama unfold as the truth does begin to come out. Verse 24. So David, he hid in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. And the king sat on his seat as usual, the seat by the wall. Then Jonathan rose up and Abner sat down by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not speak anything that day, for he thought, well, it's an accident. Maybe he's not clean. Surely he's not clean. So he thought maybe David did something was unclean and couldn't come to the feast. Verse 27, when it came about on the next day, the second day of the new moon, that David's place was empty. So Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why has the son of Jesse not come to the meal, either yesterday or today? And Jonathan then answered Saul, Well, David asked, Leave of me to go to Bethlehem. 
For he said, Please let me go since our family has a sacrifice in the city that my brother has commanded me to attend. And now if I have found favor in your sight, please let me get away that I may see my brother. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. So now Jonathan's playing out what he and David decided. He's given Saul opportunity to respond and react. And so what does Saul do? Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. I'll let you figure out exactly what words he used there. Do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? He is going on. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. But Jonathan answered Saul his father and said to him, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? And Saul, look at this, hurled his spear at him to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that David had decided to put, that his father had decided to put David to death. Saul hated David so much, his bitterness at this point was so intense that when he picked up the spear, he didn't throw it at David, he threw it at his one and only son. He chucked the spear at Jonathan, who he loved. Because he was so angry with David, who he hated. And there's an incredible truth here, gang. If I hate anyone, if I allow bitterness in any aspect of my life, it will eventually spill out on the ones I love. It eventually will affect those who I love the most. And we think, oh, I can handle it. Listen, hatred is not containable. I can deal with it. Bitterness is not something you can just set aside and deal with at another time. If you feel hatred or bitterness, it it burns like acid. And it will spill over on people who are closest to you. That's why Jesus said, I say to you, Matthew 5.44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Because hate is like cancer. Hate will destroy you. Bitterness will destroy your family. Love is the key. Romans 5.8 God shows us the perfect example He demonstrates His own love for us in that while we were yet sinners while we were rebellious while we were distant from God He died for us not when we were friends but when we were acting like enemies that's when He died for us God's love revealed that Calvary is the great heavenly eraser that word again propitiation the erasure of our sins completely that's what Jesus did at Calvary before I did anything to deserve it at the cross he erases hatred at the cross he erases bitterness at the cross he replaces them with love Matthew 22 Jesus said you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind it's the greatest commandment and the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself Listen, we don't spear the ones we love. Right? We spare them. We don't spear them. It's important to make sure you get that word right. Oh, Rick said spear the ones you love. No. We spare the ones we love. How do we do that? By loving the ones who hate us. By loving those who have thrown the spear at you, you actually will have more, greater capacity to love those around you. By determining to look at an enemy and give love to that person, you will be more able to love people close to you. It is a spiritual truth that the Bible talks about, that we see lived out, that Jesus lived out before us. 
I can actually develop a greater capacity to love my loved ones if I learn to love those who are against me and even those who hate me. But if I hate those who hate me, if I go against my enemies, if I am bitter toward them, I impact my own family. And this is a great personal motivation to love. I once heard it put this way, this is a tough statement to swallow. But I believe it's true. You only love Jesus as much as the person you love the least. Oh, I love Jesus. Think about the person you just can't stand. Oh, I I worship Jesus. Yeah, but what about that person that you're in a fight with right now? You only love Jesus as much as the person you love the least. You want to measure your love for the Lord? Consider your enemy and how you feel toward them. Well, I can't find chapter or verse for that. Neither can I. (laughs) But you know what? That's the teaching of Jesus. That's the life he lived. How do I know that Jesus really loved me? Because he died for me at my worst. How do you know that Jesus is really, that God is a God of love? Because when he went to Calvary, he died for people like Adolf Hitler. Are you saying Hitler's going to heaven? No. I'm saying Jesus died for people like that. And he could have. He could have gone to heaven. You only love Jesus as much as the person you love the least. And John writes in 1 John 4 verse 20, If someone says, I love God, and here's the verse that is in the Bible about this, if I love God, but he hates his brother, he's a liar. Pretty black and white. The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. John would tell you that's how you measure your love for Jesus in how much you love the person that you love the least. You can't love God and hate your brother. So verse 34, they have this whole thing worked out. They see what's happened. Saul has now hurled his spear at Jonathan to kill him because of his bitterness toward David, his hatred toward David. And Jonathan, verse 34, arose from the table in fierce anger and did not eat fruit on the second day of the new moon for he is grieved over David and his father for his, because his father had dishonored him. And it came about in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field for the appointment with David and the little lad was with him. And he said to the lad, Run, find now the arrows which I am about to shoot. And as the lad was running, he shot an arrow past him. When the lad reached the place of the arrow which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the lad and said, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. And Jonathan's lad picked up the arrow and came to his master. So at this point, David knows it's bad news. you got to flee. You were right. Saul's after your life. The lad, verse 33, was not aware of anything, but only David and Jonathan knew about the matter. But Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, Go, bring them to the city. And when the lad was gone, David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the more 
And Jonathan said to David, Go in safety inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord will be between me and you, between my descendants and your descendants forever. And then he rose and departed while Jonathan went into the city. I used to read this and wonder, well, what was the whole arrow thing about? If they met anyway, Jonathan could have just told David. I don't believe that was the plan. Because Jonathan would have been in danger if anyone saw him with David. So the plan was, shoot the arrow, you'll see what the answer is, and you take off, and I'll go back. What happened was, after they had given the sign, David and Jonathan loved each other so very much, they couldn't bear to part without one last greeting, without one last tearful goodbye. Yeah, but it says that they kissed each other. Why would it say that? Well, it's culture. In fact, if you go to the Middle East today, if you travel to Israel, they still kind of do that kind of thing. You know? The Bible even says to greet one another with a holy kiss. You're not going to see that happening from me around here. A few things that we realize are cultural issues. And this is one of them. But there was an intense and deep and passionate love between these two to the point that I think about what Jonathan did in verse 42 it says that he went back into the city and I think if they loved each other so much if they were so tight if they were such good friends why didn't Jonathan just run away with David join up with David be on David leave his father Saul behind leave him in the dust why not go why would you go back and stay there with your hateful spiteful bitter crazy father Because the heart of a friend seeks to truly put other people first. And what we see in the life of Jonathan was that he was incredibly devoted. He was devoted first to the Lord. Almost every time Jonathan opens his mouth, he refers to the Lord. He says to David, the Lord be between you and me. He says to his father, don't do this thing which is wrong in the sight of the Lord. Jonathan is a spiritual man. He is devoted to the Lord. He is also devoted to David in their friendship. Very devoted man. He wants David to have the throne. He doesn't need the throne himself. He wants truth to out. And if the truth is that David gets the throne, and if the truth is his father is crazy, well, let the truth be out. He loves David. He's devoted to him. But Jonathan is also, through all of this, he remains devoted to his father, Saul. Now that is a devoted son. He still goes back to his dad. Why? Because it's the right thing to do. He gives up his friendship with David. He loves him. But he knows to go with him would be a severe betrayal of his father. And so he says, David, I'm going to let you go. I love you. But i got to go back home. i got to keep my commitment to my father. Amazing. He gives his friendship up. He gives his future up. All for the sake of his father. Jonathan is an amazing, amazing man. But did you catch the interesting wording in the last verse? In fact, the last sentence of the story. It says, David rose and departed while Jonathan went into the city. He rose and departed while Jonathan went into the city. He rose and departed while Jonathan went into the city. I read this and I thought, wow, I mean the parallels here are incredible. As David rose and departed, so Jesus rose and departed. As Jonathan went into the city, so the apostles did the exact same thing. Now Jonathan, when he went back into the city after his meeting with David, his heart must have been heavy. But I guarantee that Jonathan went back to his father a changed man. 
changed because of his friendship with David changed because of the love that was there the compassion changed and so that change would affect his life for the rest of his days and after Jesus resurrection after his resurrection hear me on this after he rose he rose again Jesus arose from the dead on that Easter Sunday but we're told 40 days later that he rose a second time actually into the sky and departed Acts chapter 1 verse 9 says after these things he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight and as they were gazing intently into the sky that he was going behold two men in white clothing stood beside them I love what they say the two angels they said men of Galilee why do you stand looking into the sky picture this Jesus is already gone and Peter and the guys are all just going I can go on but the angel said what are you doing why are you standing here what are you standing around for he says this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go he's coming back the same way they're by the way on the Mount of Olives Zechariah the prophet says when he comes back again he's going to set foot on the Mount of Olives and in the same way that they saw him ascend into the heavens he's going to descend from the heavens in great power and authority when he ushers in the millennial kingdom it's promised he's going to come but it tells us in Acts 1.12 they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet which is near Jerusalem a Sabbath day journey and a Sabbath day journey by the way is, is about three-fifths of a mile it's not that far you stand on the Mount of Olives you see Jerusalem right down they just walk down the hill and back into the city but what happened with David and Jonathan same thing happened with Jesus and the apostles David rose and departed and Jonathan went back into the city a changed man Jesus rose and departed and the apostles went back into the city forever changed they were changed by the stone that shows the way they were changed by the stone that is the stone of departing and I've sometimes wondered about the apostles man how could you go back to daily life after developing a friendship like they had with Jesus how could you go back to old ways after watching him ascend into heaven how could you just go back to the old things and the answer is you can't they didn't when they went back into the city they were changed men they were radically altered from that day forward how can we go back to a normal life when we have experienced the kind of friendship that Jesus offers us and the answer is for us we can't can't go back to the same old things and the same old way of living even tonight how can you go home after hearing about Jesus and not have some change in the way you live we can't Jesus said in John 15 13 greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends and Proverbs says there is a friend there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother he who is stuck with nails and thorns and a spear is closer than a brother. He who sticks up for you and me, even now, interceding before the Father in heaven, Hebrews chapter 7 tells us. And he who promises to stick close by you every step of your life, even if it's your last step 
how can we not live lives forever changed? And that's the question, Father. And we pray tonight that your word will not fall on deaf ears. We sang twice tonight, Lord, draw me close to you. Draw me near to you. Never let me go. Father, you promised that that nobody can snatch us out of your hand. That you have grabbed hold of us. Lord, I think every now and then we pry your fingers apart and we take steps away from your hand. How can we hear about Jesus, Lord, and not be changed? God, will you change our lives, change our minds, and change our hearts. Change the way we behave, the way we treat other people. Lord Jesus, change us to be lovers. Father, may we put away the swords and put away the spears. May we stop attacking and hurting those who we think deserve it in favor of loving those who don't deserve it. Father, may we live lives so changed that like Linda Cheeks on our last day when someone asks us our name we can just say it's glory it's glory Jesus we praise you for your word thank you in Jesus name Amen